Acing and efforts. This episode is sponsored by this guy. That's right. A coach gives you tips, pointers, but more importantly, holds you accountable when the work gets hard. And believe me, it always does. Coaching sessions with me include Skype calls, transcripts of those calls to refer to later, detailed critiques for the work, email correspondence, and the knowledge that you know you've got somebody in your corner to see things you can't see. Email me and we'll start a dialogue. If you're ready to level up, I'd be honored to serve you in your work. If people are going to learn to put together a piece of IKEA furniture, IKEA, even with those weird little diagrams, at least tells you the steps in order of what you're supposed to do with the weird little uh, screwdriver thing. And with, you know, with those three nuts and the two bolts, at least they tell you in the right order. And I wanted to at least do that as well. That's Kristen Meinzer, author of How to Be Fine and So You Want to Start a Podcast. I'm Brendan O'Mara, and this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Oh, that's right. This is the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to hang out. You can you can put your feet on the table. Like I'm not, I'm not super picky about that. Go for it. Just take your shoes off, okay? I'm telling you right now, right now. Yeah, I'm, yeah, you. It's it's fine. I don't think you're rinsing all the soap off those plates. I think I still feel some grease on that fork you just put away. Just, uh, just something I noticed. Today's guest is the remarkable Kristen Meinzer, author of So You Want to Start a Podcast and co-author of How to Be Fine with Jolinta Greenberg. Go check out that little ditty in the archives from a couple months ago. Kristen also co-hosts the world-famous By the Book podcast with Jolenta. That was the inspiration, of course, for How to Be Fine. Kristen's fingerprints can be found on these crime scenes. We love you and so can you. Happier with Gretchen Rubin, Girl Boss Radio, The Sporkful, Movie Therapy, among other things. It's She's pretty, pretty special. And uh, we have a saying on this show that you ought to know by now. She's wicked smart. We talk about her growing up in Minnesota, getting in a rider truck to head to New York after college, her pet peeves about new podcasters, why you are making the show, who is it for, and how to start and grow a show. Pro tip, it's a lot of work and rigor, but you knew that because you can see and maybe even hear the sweat dripping off my brow as I beg you to share this with a friend and to keep the conversation going, of course, on social media at CNFPod across the big three. You might also want to give the show a nice rating to help more people like you, yeah, you, join the party. There's a lot. There's a lot of beer in the fridge, and I'd love to share it. You can head over to brendanomero.com for show notes. And to sign up for the monthly newsletter that goes out on the first of the month. Reading recommendations, book raffles, cool articles, and what you might have missed from the world of the podcast. First of the month, no spam, can't beat it. You're going to want to stay tuned to the end of the show for my parting shot. I mean, come on, it's some deferred gratification, right? Don't you just love hearing me blather on about nonsense? Well, you can. It's just at the end of the show now, where nobody listens to it. Thanks, analytics. Uh, 
Anyway, it's fine. Um, it's all fine. It's very fine. So in the meantime, why not? Why, why wait? Let's do this. Here's Kristen Meinzer. <laughs> When I had you and Jolenta on early, you know, I had read How to Be Fine. I, um, it's one of those things where my, my wife tends to not trust book recommendations I give her, but I was like, you're going to love this one. <laughs> and sure enough, she was skeptical because I recommended it. And then she read it and she loved it. And she is such a by-the-book super fan now. And uh, I just oh, wanted to be sure I shared you. that with you. Yeah, oh, that makes us so happy. Thank you. And... Um, we found that a lot of people who are skeptical about the self-help universe, they may not initially think, oh, this is a book I want to read. And then they do. And they're like, oh, oh, they're not trying to prescribe self-help things to me. They're just talking about their own lives. They're really just essentially their memoirists talking about what they've done during this terrible experimental uh, seven seasons of the show. <laughs> yeah, and, and she sees so much of herself in the in the two of you. So it's just like you know, it's it, she really feels like you know, and, and when podcasts are really humming and you really like hit your stride, it truly feels like it's like you, Jalenta, and one listener, and they feel like enveloped by that whole experience. And I swear that's how she feels by it. So that's a that's a testament to what you and your team are doing on that show. Oh, thank you. And it's a testament to your wife, too. We appreciate every single listener and the loyalty they have with us and the relationship they build with us. And um, it, anytime I hear a story like that, it just it makes my heart sing. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, and she she wanted me to uh, to also share that she just finds that uh, you in particular, but also Jolanta, but she wanted me to bring this up to you. That she feels that you're just incredibly brave and compassionate. So I wanted oh, to share that with you too. Oh my gosh, what is her name? Melanie. Melanie, thank you so much, Melanie. Melanie, you're beautiful. I, I you just made my day. Thank you. And she's an environmental scientist too, so I think I'll <gasps> resonate with you. Oh my gosh, she's a superhero. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Real heroes don't wear capes. They're environmental scientists. Oh, my God. That's so cool. Oh, my God. No offense, Brendan, but man, you got a good one. I don't mean to make it sound like she's out of your league or anything, but holy crow, you're married no, you're to an environmental not... scientist. That's so cool. Exactly. No, you're totally right. She's totally out of my league. So. Oh, my God. That's so cool. That's like definitely one of the coolest jobs on the planet. That's like up there with astronaut to me. Like, oh, my God, you married an astronaut. You married yeah. an environmental scientist. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's just baked into her bones and her DNA, and uh, yeah. So she'll go to her she'll go to her grave, hopefully a long, long time from now, just always advocating and fighting for it in whatever capacity she can and whatever job she has. That's uh, you know, that's her north star. Oh, I love that. Oh, she's so great. She's so great. Well, and speaking of great, like Kristen, you like the work that the work that you do and the energy with which you you bring to your work and to the community at large is also like just super great and and, and in service of you know of storytelling and and uh, representation. And I and as we start to unpack that, I'd love to go back a little bit and uh, get a sense of you know the kid you were growing up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> um. Well. I, you know, my Nana was kind of my best friend growing up, if that tells you what kind of kid I was. I loved hmm. hanging with my Nana, loved watching Little House on the Prairie reruns. I 
uh, adored reading celebrity gossip, sitting side by side with my nana. We would read the National Enquirer and Star and things like that and watch the celebrity gossip shows like uh, Entertainment Tonight and so on. Uh, I think a lot of my tastes were essentially from, you know, the single digits formed to turn me into one of the golden girls. And I, oh, I feel wow. like I've pretty much been one ever since in my own <laughs> in my own special little way. Yes. <laughs> I used to watch Golden Girls like every Friday night with my mom, like oh, growing up. Gosh. It's yeah. still super funny. I don't know if you've watched it since you were a kid, but I have I haven't. It's, it's still really, really funny. It's very clever. <laughs> and uh and in in reading um of course it's, um your your podcast book too you know i came across this thing you know 14 years old and politically active um so wh- where does that come from to be activated at such a a young age well i don't ever think that my mother or my nana were overt about it but i can say this when my mom was a teenager she snuck out of the house at night to see jfk speak she was part of the zero population growth movement. Um, She was uh, part of the anti-nuclear proliferation movement. And uh, she wasn't out in the streets marching usually, but I had friends who were. So I began doing that. And and it made my mom really proud. And, uh, you know, when we were in college, when I was in college, my mom and I did go and see people like Ralph Nader speak and so on. So, but um, yeah, I think that it was kind of, folded into the ethos of my household, even if, as I said, my mom wasn't necessarily always out there marching, but she had her memberships to different organizations. She had her donations she made. And as a young kid, I just, I don't think I had money to donate to anything, um, but I had time. So I volunteered a lot and I demonstrated a lot starting when I was about 14. And you know, I, I read too that uh, that you know, your parents split up when you were younger too. Uh, at what age was that? Oh gosh, um, I must have been in maybe third grade. I think it was. I'm trying to remember the exact age. I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. I was pretty young. I was 12, but not not third grade. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that definitely it definitely has it has its effect. Did that, did that have any sort of you know a negative impact on on your upbringing? Well, you know, I I think that the more negative impacts were not from the divorce, but from uh, my dad and stepmom, who I have not talked to. I I think I've talked to them twice since I was 12 years old, were um, an especially bad parenting combo. So I, w- I would say that my issues were more about them as parental figures and um not with the divorce itself. I don't think divorce is the worst possible outcome. In a lot of cases, it's the best possible outcome for kids, for parents, for everybody involved. I know that there's, you know, a lot of debate about that. There are some people who really believe you stay together for the kids no matter what. And I don't believe that's true. I I just think sometimes it's best for everybody if, if this marriage comes to an end. And it doesn't mean that anyone's a failure. Some things just have a shelf life, and some people can't grow together anymore, and and that's fine. It's not great, but you know it happens, and it's fine. Right? Yeah. No, I totally totally agree. And uh, and you also have a have a sister too. So uh, in that in that in that divorce, was there any of that uh, that awful like side picking, or did or were you guys able? to Oh gosh, it together? was constant. Yeah, there was yeah. always picking sides. There was always. <laughs> Uh, pitting the children against each other. There were a lot of terrible things that were happening um, with regard to my father and that particular side of the family. And, you know, 
like I said, there's a reason I haven't talked to that side of the family. And I also think that that's okay. I know that not everybody wants to do that, but sometimes we have to cut out people from our lives if they treat us very badly. And I think that's fine. Uh, I know not everybody wants to do it, but for me, it was the best choice. If someone's going to be um, abusive and um, do inhumane things to me, they don't deserve to have me in their life. I am a joy and you are so lucky if I am in your life and you don't deserve to have me if you don't treat me right. That's amazing. How how did it, a lot of people I would say will struggle with that kind of uh, confidence and self-assuredness and and to feel that way about themselves. How did how did you cultivate uh, cultivate that sense that yeah that like that I am I am that joy to be around and you know if you're not going to treat me well you know what it's best we go our separate ways and be around people who do appreciate me for who I am. Oh gosh, I think that takes a lifetime. As far as my yeah. dad and stepmom go, as far as that side of the family, I wasn't. Uh, cutting things off because I was so strong and so brave. Like I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I'm talking the big game now, but back then it's because I was a child and I was afraid and I was treated very, very badly. And um, attorneys were involved. The city was involved. There was, um, uh, there were mental health professionals involved. It was a very, very bad situation where essentially, I'll just put it this way, they were not fit to be raising children. It was very, very bad. Mm. Um, so me not seeing them anymore as a young child was mostly out of fear and child endangerment issues. But as an adult, I have had to, you know, sever ties with other people in my life who've treated me very badly. And it's taken me a long time to get to that point. There are definitely people I kept in my life longer than I should have. And um, I think that that happens to a lot of us. Oh, we have history together. Oh, we've known each other so long. Oh, you know, we we don't always want to end things. We want to keep working at things. And, um, and, and it hurts to say goodbye to people that we love sometimes. But yeah, there are people I've had to cut out because they've done terrible things. Like, um, I'll just give a terrible example. Like when I was in college, one of my friends slept with one of my boyfriends. And I kept her around for years after that, thinking like, oh, it was his fault, not hers. Oh, we've been friends since we were kids. Oh, she has so many shared memories with me. I don't know if I can even have any memories of my youth without her involved. Oh, she's gotten me through so many tough times. But then as time went on, I just kept seeing more and more behaviors that were undermining me, not to the severity of you're sleeping with my boyfriend, but I thought eventually, I just can't be around this anymore. And it was terrible to cut off a friend that I had for 20 years, but I had to do it. And it took me a long time to recover from it, many years. It was probably the worst breakup I ever had, but now I'm happy I did. My life's great now. Excellent. Excellent. And so, so of course, you, uh, you, you, go, you go to school and you're studying you know, film, uh, um, among, among other things. And then it, there comes a point where after graduating college, you pack everything you owned into a rider truck and drove from <laughs> Minnesota to New York. So uh, let's let's put you in motion there. What was that? What was that? The headspace there of you getting behind the wheel of that truck and and driving east to you know, to the big city. Oh my gosh! It just I didn't even blink. I was like, of course I'll do it. My friend Sarah Hurley, who I met in college, and she and I are still wonderfully good friends to this day. We were just texting this morning. I love her to death. Uh, she said, let's just go to New York. And she had uh, gone to college for about a year in New York at one point. And she was another Minnesotan. And, but 
she just wanted to go to New York after college. And I said, so do I. And so we hopped into a truck and we went. And <laughs> it was a great adventure. She didn't end up staying here. I think she stayed maybe for five years. And then she moved back to Minnesota. But I've been here ever since. And now it's been 20 years. And so where where do you get the a, a love for storytelling and then specifically start to uh, sort of, um, you know, weave yourself into audio and radio and, and that kind of media for storytelling? Oh, well, I've always been a huge consumer of movies, TV, and books. From a very young age, I was that kid who had the suitcase full of records with those books that they would go beep and then you'd turn the page and the you know the record player would essentially read to you while you read along in a story. So I would spend hours a day doing that, hours a day watching TV and movies, hours a day, uh, as I said, reading the National Enquirer with my Nana, doing all of the uh, consuming of media and story that I possibly could from a young age. And I just fell in love with being told stories. But I don't think that's unusual. I think most people love that. Put any kid in front of a storybook or in front of a TV and they'll fall in love with it, right? Um, So I loved that. But then the older I got, I really just loved stories also because no matter who I talked to in this world, I came to realize they have something that is unique and that is only theirs. They have their own story in them that nobody else has told before. And so the older I got, the more I thought, I want to help encourage other people to tell their stories too. I don't just want to consume stories. I want to make stories and I want to hear other people's stories along the way. So when I was in college, I was an arts and entertainment journalist for a while. And one of my favorite things about that job was I got to interview people and hear people's stories. And then I got to write out their stories and kind of frame them the way I wanted to that I thought would best serve them and best serve Uh, their story. And I loved that. And the older I got, the more I thought, oh, how do I turn this into a full-time job? And after college, moving to New York with zero contacts other than my roommate and friend Sarah, it was hard at first. So for the first few years in New York, I was bouncing around with kind of administrative assistant jobs. And I wasn't really sure how to get my foot into the door into a real storytelling sort of job. And Eventually, I did build up enough friends and enough contacts where they would say, oh, I know somebody there. I can probably forward your resume to them or whatnot. And then um, eventually, I was able to break into TV and then into radio. I worked in public radio for six and a half years. And then the podcasting boom came and a number of companies started headhunting public radio to try and get podcast people like me. And so... Uh, I've been doing that ever since, just full-time podcasting for, I think it's about five years now. I've been doing it full-time. In public radio, I was podcasting part-time. They had me mostly being a producer, also podcasting. So, And and that wasn't something I planned on, by the way. I never thought that I would be on a microphone telling my story. But early on in public radio had me start doing it, and then uh, I started doing it full-time a few years ago. I asked the uh, a while ago the the great Alexandra De Palma, who's a, a producer uh, of sorts of several podcasts, including her own, but a lot of others with her her podcasting company. Uh, and I asked her uh, about the role of a producer and what exactly does a producer do. And I'd extend that to you as someone who's been in this for for several years now. You know, because 
it's kind of a nebulous term. So how uh, help shed some light to someone who might not exactly know what a what a producer does. <laughs> a producer does everything. A producer <laughs> is helping to set up your tech. A producer is helping to book your guests. A producer is cutting together the episodes to get rid of all the ums and the uhs and the fumbles and the mouth noises. A producer is mixing in the music, leveling the sound. A producer is promoting your show, pushing it out on social media, setting up promo swaps with other shows. A producer is dealing with all the mail that comes in and with all the listener relations. A producer is doing at least 100 different things on any given day. Being a producer is really fun. I've done it for years and years and years for my own shows, for other shows, and it is a lot of work and it's often thankless. And not every host, when they're on mic, thanks their producer. Um, I, for years, I've worked on shows where I was never thanked. And then finally, I worked on a show where they're at the end, they had a closing credit and they said, Oh, and huge thanks to our producer, Kristen Meinzer. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Somebody just recognized me. <laughs> it was great. But a they lot of hosts me. Yeah, a lot of hosts don't ever thank their producers. And I always, always, when I have a producer, thank my producers profusely. I bring them onto the mic. I have special episodes where we talk with each other about their process because producers work so hard and I think that a lot of what they do is completely thankless. So yeah, producers are great. And in my opinion, the best hosts have also been producers at one point or another. And uh, I also think some of the best producers I've ever met also host sometimes because they kind of teach you how to do the other. So for example, as a host, I may be blathering on and on and on and um and ah and like and oh gosh, what was I saying? And oh, let me circle back to that prior thing. Oh, but first let me get to this question. And as the producer, I am cutting all of that out, and I'm realizing as a producer, if I'm both the producer and host, oh boy, that was not my best hosting. I'm just going to cut this out and cut this out and cut this out. So if you're wearing both hats, it can really teach you to do a better job of the other job. That's what I found. And Brendan, do you also produce your own show, or do you have a producer? I do it myself. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm sure when you're cutting together a show, you'll hear yourself do certain things and think, I'm not going to do that next time I'm on the microphone. Exactly. It, it takes quite a bit of, well, it's just like anything. It takes a quite a bit of uh, just repetition of, of failing forward, if you will, of just learning through the experience of it, of learning how to have mic awareness. Don't get too close. Don't be too far away. Uh, ensure that you're not smacking your lips, making weird mouth noises, drinking into the microphone, eating near the <laughs> microphone. It's like so many of these things I hear on other podcasts, e- even very highly produced, polished podcasts with prominent hosts. I'm hearing this stuff. I'm like, are you serious? Like, I'm just a self-taught <laughs> audio person and I know that this is bad. So yeah, it's it's one of those deals. But being wearing the producer hat and the host hat, yes, you hear yourself. You're like, oh yeah, let's. I'm gonna edit this out now. But hopefully, over the course of my hosting and my interviewing, I can sort of self-edit as I go along. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So I encourage all new podcasters to do everything: be your producer, be your host, do it all. And later on, maybe you'll be able to hire a producer or maybe later on you'll realize hosting isn't my thing. I'll bring on a host or I'll bring on a co-host. And that's fine. I think it's all a learning 
exercise and we all get better hopefully over time the more mistakes we make the more you know um to this day I've now been podcasting well over a decade and I still make mistakes and every once in a while I catch myself and I fix it once in a while I don't catch it and it goes out into the world and I think that's okay I I will do better next time it's just part of the process part of the process yeah, so when I when I speak primarily to writers and stuff who who are editors or or have like an editor inclination and but they're also trying to compose and it's like how do you divorce the two because if you're too if you if the editor hat is too heavy on the head while you're while you are uh, composing it can get in the way of the unbridled nature you need just to get some shitty words onto the page so <laughs> and and so there's there's that whole thing to wrestle with um uh, do you find that having been a producer that sometimes I, I, you need to, I don't know, scale back that a little bit as you're hosting so you, and then go and post, you can fix things? Or does it really help to have the both hats on at the same time? I tend to have both hats on at the same time. But I will say that when I am writing, I was taught something. Um, I, I got an MFA a few years ago. Oh, gosh, more than a few oh, years wow. ago. Um, I have an MFA in that. fiction writing. And I remember one of my professors said, don't fall into the editing trap. Editing mm. rather than writing and just rewriting the same sentence over and over, rearranging this paragraph over and over and over again. And that producer or that professor was so correct in my case because I would spend so many hours just doing rewrites rather than producing new stories. I should have been writing. I should have been getting the stories in my heart out there. I should have been experimenting. I should have been making terrible mistakes with my storytelling or great experiments, whatever you want to call them. And instead, I fell into the trap that a lot of people do. I would just edit, edit, edit. So um, that's something that I've had to work to fight in my writing and uh, at this point, when it comes to podcasting, I'm kind of okay at mixing the two. I, I have a system that works for me, but it's still the case, you know, writing books or writing stories that I have to make sure I don't fall too much into that trap of just editing, editing, editing. I have to, I have to write. Got to get it out there. And given that you're, you know, a, an author who's written two books and you've produced several shows and hosts several shows... Which which feels more natural and most comfortable for you, writing or audio? Well, at this point, I would say audio feels more comfortable, but with every audio project I do, I write. I don't know if the listeners know how much writing I do behind the scenes for each episode. Mm -hmm. So, for example, with By the Book, on that show, Jolenta and I live by the rules of a different self-help book in each episode. But before we live by those books... We read the book cover to cover, and we essentially write out a book report. This is who the author is. This is the story of the book and you know the number of bestseller lists it hit, how many copies it sold, and so on. These are the rules of the book. And distilling the rules of a self-help book down to 10 or fewer steps is a lot harder than you might think because most self-help authors are very bad writers and don't think about basics like structure or story or breaking things down into bite-sized pieces. So Every episode of By the Book, before we even start living by the book, we spend at least 20 hours reading and writing. And so a lot of work goes into the writing also. And then, you know, other things kind of write themselves. So I have this other show called Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen. And on that show, people write to us with their conundrums. Maybe it's, you know, 
I'm trapped at home with my kids during COVID and I want to run away. Or uh, I am thinking of cheating on my husband. Tell me what to do. Or I hate homeschooling. I cannot stand it. I'm in college. I want to live free. I can't believe I'm 22 and living in my parents' basement right now. So they'll write to us with letters like these and we will give them some advice and then we will prescribe them a movie or TV show to watch to help them through whatever they're dealing with. And so it's a mixture of kind of a watch list. It's kind of a mixture of an advice show. It's a mixture of a few different things. But that mostly writes itself because the letter writers are providing the content for us. All we really have to do, my co-host Rafer and I, is offer genuine empathy, which we don't write out our empathy. That empathy just comes from us. So we don't write out a script of what we're going to say in advance to each person. But we, you know, we let them write the content for us. And then we come up with a movie prescription or a TV prescription. So every show is different. That show is a lighter lift because I don't have to write a book report every episode. We tape every single week and the prep for that show is less than an hour and then we just get to taping and so you know every show has its own structure some of them are going to require a lot of writing some of them are not but I always tell people regardless of whether or not there is a lot of writing just make sure you have structure I I already mentioned that a lot of self-help books don't but they should and so should podcasts podcasts should also have structure I'm so glad you brought up structure that's a big thing that I wanted to talk to you about um, let's let's first talk about with uh, with with your with your book at first, uh, and then we can talk into how important it is to have structure in a podcast as well. Because um, we, I think there's there's a misconception that it's great to just have this free flowing things, but I think it's. Uh, but we, we we can dive into that in a moment. Uh, but with the book, of course, you broke it down into you know these these big chunks, calling it dream it, write it, host it, cast it, make it, share it, grow it. So how important was having that wireframe baked into So You Want to Start a Podcast? Oh, my gosh. It was the first thing I did was start laying out all the steps. And the book actually has, if I remember correctly, 37 distinct steps. And they all fall under seven main headings. And I wanted every single step to be distinct, everything to be clear. I don't want anyone ever to after they're done reading, think, hold on, what am I supposed to do? What order should I do things in? I don't want anyone to think that after they put the book down. I don't want anyone to just think I'm giving them a book of cheerleading, which the book is also cheerleading. A lot of what I'm doing in the book is trying to reassure people that their story matters, that their voice is important, that nobody else has your story, and that the world is lucky if they get to hear your story. And I do try to do that cheerleading, and I do try to reveal a lot of the mistakes I've made. I've made so many mistakes, and Mm -hmm. I want to put that out there. But I also want people to have solid takeaways. And each section is so snackable that you know, you can feel accomplished when you read the book too. So I wanted to set it up that way also so that whoever's reading it feels joyous when they're reading it. They feel, oh, I just learned something in this section. And later on, I know the exact order that I can do things in. And I just, I, I'd read too many instructional books that hadn't done that. I'd read way too many self-help books and business books that hadn't done that. It's amazing how many business books don't do that. And these are basics. If people are going to learn to put together a piece of Ikea furniture, 
IKEA, even with those weird little diagrams, at least tells you the steps in order of what you're supposed to do with the weird little uh, screwdriver thing. And with, you know, with those three nuts and the two bolts, at least they tell you in the right order. And I wanted to at least do that as well. Was there ever a point to that, you know, maybe after after Grow It, after you've put it out there, that maybe that there's there's this addendum there that might be quit it? Was there a point where you're like, maybe there's a point where, you know, this thing, you've done it, but it might not be getting the traction you need, and maybe it's time to quit and move on to <laughs> something else. Was that ever a temptation? Well, I do fold that into one of the early chapters. I make clear that in order to make a podcast, you have got to have the energy and the love to keep it going because it's way more work than most people think it is. And you need to be either obsessed with your topic or in love with the process. You need to have enough love to give because that's why most podcasts die. Most podcasts, depending on what stats you're looking at, die after six to nine episodes. And some people call that, oh, it's just natural pod fade. And I say, oh, it's a case of there not being enough love to keep it going and not enough awareness about how much work it is. So I just think people need to know that up front. And if they try it and they realize, I don't have enough energy for this, I don't have enough love for this, it's okay to call it quits. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. You should only do it if you want to. There are other things you can do instead. You can knit. You can garden. You can join a book club. There are a lot of beautiful ways where you can put your soul and heart and creativity out into the world. It doesn't have to be a podcast. Yeah, there was a, I, I saw on Twitter several weeks ago that, you know, someone put out, he's like, oh, I, I finally caved in and started a podcast. I was just like, <laughs> no. like, well, you don't know. This isn't mandatory. I know it's it's kind of in vogue or maybe it, to do to maybe do this thing if you have some platform that you got to do this. It's like, no, you don't. I I was just so irritated by that. It was really, it just boiled my blood. Nobody has to do it. It's kind of like, you know, TikTok. You don't have to TikTok. It's fine (laughs) to not TikTok. It's okay to not have a YouTube channel. It's okay. Let's do a little flashback to 15 years ago or 20 years ago. You don't have to have a blog. You don't have to do any of these things. It's totally fine. Life will go on. Uh, 10 million years down the road when the aliens come here and take over the planet, they're not going to care if they find your human uh, blog or podcast or whatnot. It doesn't matter. It's fine if you don't do it. Only do it if you want to. Exactly. And so piggybacking off structure, we talked about it with respect to to your book, which is just got some, it's a great way to connect the dots from conception to execution. Um, But in terms of within, within a podcast, even an interview show, or, you know, something with by the book, you know, how important is it to conceptualize a structure for for something for, for for an audio product like a podcast? Oh, my gosh, it's incredibly important. It makes it so much easier to host a show uh, and to produce it, first of all, because what do you want to do? Just sit down at a mic and just freeform yammer on in a way that Listeners don't know why you're talking, who you're talking to, what you're talking about, um, where you're not introducing yourself, where there's not an open or close. I think that a lot of people think that that's what a podcast is. It's like, oh, it's just freeform talking. Dave mm-hmm. and I are really funny. We're great. We get together every week and we just talk about what's what's gotten us laughing. And, you know, that's not really what is going to connect with listeners. They're, they're probably going to love you and Dave 
if you present yourself to them with a purpose, if you know why you're making the show, if you know who it's for, and if you have a structure. Nobody wants to walk into a room full of people laughing and talking and not engaging with them. I always compare it to a dinner party. Let's say I come to a dinner party and a friend of a friend invited me. I don't see my friend in the room. No one's acknowledging me. No one's welcoming me. Welcoming me. No one's introducing themselves. No one's saying, oh, mingle for a bit. Grab a drink over there. We're going to have dinner in 15 minutes. But until then, I want you to meet so-and-so and so-and-so. We'll have dinner in 15 minutes. And after dinner, we're all going to go outside and have tea on the lawn. That is a structure right there. That is a structure of an evening. And it makes the guest feel, or the listener in the case of a podcast, know where they are in time and space, where they're going to, who's hosting them, and how long everything is going to take generally. And I think that with podcasting, we need to treat our listeners at least as well as we treat people who are coming to our house for dinner. We need to treat them like not just anonymous numbers, but like real humans who have chosen to spend their time with you. And if they're choosing to spend their time with me, I'm going to have those basics of structure. I'm going to lay things out from the beginning, introduce myself, thank them for being there. And I think a lot of podcasters don't realize that, but um, please just think of it as a dinner party. And then as far as the structure of your show, just to go a little deeper into that, um, I don't think that people realize that the structure is helpful, not restrictive. When I talk to a lot of new podcasters, they're like, oh, I don't want to be chained in to be in this box here and then do this and then do this. And what I always say to them is the structure is actually quite freeing. Once you know that this is the shape of your show, that it has an intro, that it has 12 questions for a guest, that it has a break, that it has two more questions, that it has an outro, whatever, you know, whatever your structure is, once you know what your structure is, it allows you to be as free as you want to within the space. Kind of like when you're decorating an apartment. Some people might say, oh, I don't want any walls. I just want it to be free form. But it's so much easier to set up your furniture and to use the space if you have at least a couple of walls up. And maybe it's just a wall around this room with a toilet called a bathroom. Or maybe it's, um, you know... A uh, half wall over here that is called the kitchen, whatever it is, but having certain walls in your space makes it easier to use the space. And that's true in an apartment and it's true in a podcast. What would you identify as common mistakes beginners make and and also just piggybacking off of that, so it's kind of a two-parter. Like do you find people's expectations are a bit skewed when they get into podcasting? Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, I I think that one of the mistakes, in addition to thinking structure doesn't matter, uh, the the lack of structure is something I see so often in shows. I often just see people are not considering the two big questions. Why am I making this and who is it for? And when people know why they're making a show and who it's for, it's for, it's easier for them to find those people. It's easier for them to promote the show. It's easier for them to serve their listeners. If they know why they're making it, it will help them to come back week after week and to make the kind of content that serves that big why for them. And so I urge everyone to think about those two questions before they ever look at what brand of microphone am I going to get. Uh, Before you think of equipment at all, think about why you're making it and who it's for. Why do you need to tell the story? Why do you need to make the show? 
Who's going to be listening? How are you going to reach those listeners? And those are just crucial questions before doing anything else. Um, as far as other mistakes go, I think that a lot of people don't realize how important audio quality is. And I'm not saying you have to set up a $10,000 studio in your house. But please just don't record in an echoey space and sit six feet away from your microphone. Make sure that you have the mic in the right position. Make sure that you have some sound absorbing softness around you. A lot of people that I know record their podcasts in a closet. I am recording in a converted closet right now that is covered with spongy wall foam, but this is just a closet that I'm in. And it sounds way better than being in a more professional looking like open office uh, because there's cushion everywhere. Everything's being absorbed by sound. So there's not that tin count, uh, tin can echo that a lot of podcasters have. And there are podcast newbies who just constantly try to upgrade their equipment because they think, oh, it just doesn't sound right. And I want to reassure you, it doesn't really have that much to do with your mic. It's usually because you're recording in the wrong space and you're not close enough to your microphone. Yeah, like to, to your point about recording space, like in front of me, I've got, uh, I have a bunch of foam ahead of me on the ceiling and I have two stands behind me with a moving blanket clamped to them. So nice. I cre- so I create this little cocoon and it, you know, it might not be a whole lot of thing. It's And it's certainly a pretty cheap audio setup in terms of this, it, but it's one of those deals where, you know, the, the, the less distracting you can be possible, it's just like it further puts the attention on the wonderful insights that the guests are offering. Yeah. And there are some things that you just can't work around. Like, even though all my windows are closed right now, there is insane construction happening on the street outside my apartment now. I am hoping that most of it does not come onto this microphone. Maybe a tiny bit of it will, but hopefully not too much because I've set up my space the way I have. But, you know, there are some things that are going to be out of our hands. Sometimes you're just going to have a dog that's going to bark. Sometimes you're just going to have, you know, certain sounds that you just can't control for. But for the sounds you can control for, it's usually pretty easy, even if it's just, you know, taking a whole bunch of pillows from your house and stacking them up all around your desk. Even that helps. And what might you say to podcasters who might have something, you know, that really, really good, you know, it's objectively good, but that maybe they're just frustrated with a lack of traction. Like how might you, you know, coach them to maybe, you know, get that traction that they need to see their show go from, you know, one to 10 or even 10 to a hundred. Yeah. Well, I want them to examine that question again. Why are you making it and who is it for? If you don't know who your show is for, you can't reach out to those people. And so with each of my shows, I try to think about it. So, for example, with Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen, uh, Rafer and I used to host a show for WNYC together for years and years and years. And it was just a new releases film uh, review show, essentially, like what's in the theaters this Friday? Let's review them. And uh, that show had certain listeners. And those listeners during COVID were reaching out to us and asking us to start a new show. They said... We need to know what to watch. We're trapped in our houses all day. Will you and Rafer get back together again and host another movie podcast and tell us what to watch on Netflix, Hulu, whatnot? So what we realized was, okay, so we have built-in listeners if we start a show. They include our old listeners from WNYC. Who else can our new show have as listeners? So Rafer and I thought about it. We thought, okay, movie fans, anybody who likes advice shows, 
anybody who listens to buy the book and is already a fan of Kristen Meinzer, anybody who already reads Rafer's column in Newsday, because he's the film critic for Newsday. And we just thought of who our audience was. And we thought about ages. We thought about genders. We thought about all sorts of things. Um, And we also thought about our own identities. Rafer is Latino. I'm Asian. And we thought, oh, we can maybe attract a more diverse audience too. And then after we thought about who our listeners were, we thought about other shows that might have similar listeners. And we started cross-promoting with those shows. So for example, the hosts of Happier in Hollywood, I reached out to them and said, hey, can we do a promo swap? You talk about entertainment, uh, the life in the entertainment industry behind the scenes. You talk about your own frustrations of, you know, being full-time Hollywood writers and also full-time moms. And would you be interested in shouting out our show and we'll shout out yours because I think we would have a definite crossover audience. So we did it with them and we did it with half a dozen other shows. And then I also uh, started talking about my uh, movie therapy podcast on by the book and other podcasts that I host up until oh gosh, I think it was up until last month, I was hosting five shows at once. And now I'm back down to only three shows, which is great. (laughs) Because hosting five shows is a lot of work. (laughs) But so I would cross promote on the other shows I host, I would cross promote with other podcasters. And then I also started looking at other podcasts and thinking, oh, well, some of the hosts of these other shows can be guests on movie therapy. So we, we again, looking at who would have a crossover audience with us, we reached out to Nicole Perkins, who's one of the hosts of Thirst Aid Kit, and asked her to be a guest. Uh, we asked the hosts of Call Your Girlfriend to be on the show. They were on last week's episode. We reached out to Dan Pashman, host of The Sporkful. I used to be the producer for The Sporkful and asked if he would be a guest. And every time we have a guest on the show, we promote it on social media. And then usually the guests will retweet us and it'll reach their audiences. So that helps too. And then on top of that, I've also pitched myself as a guest to a number of other shows. So I'll reach out to other podcasts that I think have a similar audience and I'll be a guest. And what you're hopefully hearing is that I spend a lot of time thinking about promotion because this is not field of dreams. It's not like if I build it, they will come. When it comes to podcasting, you got to go out there and you got to get your listeners. And my general rule of thumb is for every one hour you spend making your podcast, in order to get an audience, you should be spending one hour promoting your podcast. That's, yeah, that, that it, what's great in hearing you talk about that is just the incredible amount of, of hustle behind the scenes. It's, it's like, you know, an NFL team getting ready for Sunday. You know, you see the three hours on the field, but there is 80 hours of prep in practice oh, yes. and study, film study. You know, pick whatever your, you know, whatever your prep is versus the performance. Fact of the matter is nobody sees the practice. All they see is that end product. All they care about is that end product. But you got to you got to put in a lot of work and a lot of rigor that no one is going to see or feel except you. And that that's important. And it's great to hear you talk about it because nobody really talks about it. So it's, it's like, oh, so it is it, when I'm struggling to get out X amount of tweets or this, that, the other, all this hustle behind the scenes that nobody feels or hears and it feels like you're just shouting into the void. It's just great to hear someone like you say like, yeah, this is, this is kind of how it, this is, this is what you do. If you want your show to grow, if you've got something you want to bring to market, this is the kind of thing you need to do. Yeah, absolutely. And 
you know, there are some people who are lucky enough that if they build it, they will come. So, for example, if you are a show that has the power of NPR behind you and you have a certain brand name, yes, people will come to you. But one reason they're coming to you is also because NPR has an enormous marketing team that is promoting your show for you, even if you're not doing the hustle. Their team is doing the hustle. They're cross-promoing your show on all of their other properties. They're doing it online. They're doing it on other podcasts. They're doing it on air and so on. And so, you know, some folks are lucky enough to have that kind of corporate backing to help them promote their shows, but most of us don't. So we got to go out there and do it ourselves. We got to do the hustle. Exactly. When you see those those podcasts that are really popular, you know, they tend to be celebrities or... Maybe it's an author who has like a big audience and then they start this podcast like, oh, I don't know how this will work. But they have millions of readers who just piggyback over to their podcast and their podcast blows up. Or like you said, with NPR, there's a big media company backing them. And that gives this false sense that if, you know, you're this this little, you know, podcast uh, producer starting from zero, that, you know, if you're not on that level, it can be pretty demoralizing until you realize that the deck is kind of stacked in the favor of certain people versus, you know, versus you and your little show with your little audience. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, most of us are just little people trying to make our shows. Most of us, you know, I, I try to encourage people to think of it this way. Let's say you're really bummed out because you don't have a million downloads on your show. Let's say you've been working on your show for a few months and you still have a thousand downloads on your show. Well, think about how great that is. Are you actually friends with a thousand people? Do you have a thousand close friends? Probably not. Most of us don't have a thousand close friends. Maybe Michelle Obama does because, you know, everyone loves Michelle Obama. But the rest of us don't have a thousand close friends. And so that's still an accomplishment that you have a thousand listeners, especially considering that there are over two million podcasts out there. With over two million podcasts, a thousand people chose to listen to you. That's something to be happy about. Celebrate that. Don't see that as defeat. And a pet peeve I have with shows, even really prominent shows that get you know millions or hundreds of thousands of downloads, big platform, is usually at the start of the show, there's like this almost five-minute prologue of like, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, this is great. I'm so glad we were able to do this. Oh, and it goes gosh. on like, ugh. It goes on like that for like five minutes. It's like, I, I love that you're chums. I love that you're bros. Edit this shit out. Like, no, we don't yes. need to hear this. Let's just get, let's just start getting to the meat of it. Not, not, a, not a lot of this, <laughs> this just like, hey, and they're shaking hands, slapping five. It's just like, okay, guys, I'm, let's, let's, let's clip this out and move to the, what people are really here to listen to. Yeah. If you're not telling listeners in the first minute the name of your show and who you are, most listeners will shut it off. Now, there are exceptions to this. There are certain shows that have uh, managed to still build an audience who love that they're in on the joke. They know all the inside jokes. They know all the nicknames. They, They don't care if you've introduced yourself because they've been listening to your show from the very beginning. But even though those shows may have very large followings, it's hard oftentimes for those shows to get new listeners. Uh, the loyal listeners will stick with it because they feel like, oh, they're talking to me. I've been with them for so many years. But again, it's that dinner party scenario. If I'm walking into that dinner party for the first time and no one's acknowledging me, they're just spending five minutes riffing with each other and ignoring me and not telling me who they are. I'm not going to want to stick around. I'm going to shut off that podcast. So please, in the first minute of your show, do not 
wait until minute five or minute 10 or God forbid, minute 15. That's happened with some shows I've tried to listen to. Ugh. Tell me the name of your show and who you are. Please do, do that in the first minute. So we, we've talked that that's a, that's a pet peeve we share, also bad audio. Is there anything else that you see as a longtime producer that it's one of those things that it's you can no longer unhear and it drives you nuts? I am going to take it in a completely different direction and say one of my biggest pet peeves are dudes who only interview dudes. They don't oh. realize that they're doing it, but this is a very yeah. common problem in podcasts where Huge. men will not realize that everyone they're interviewing is another man. And I've, I've talked with some of the men who do this. I've, I've trained certain people at uh, companies who are in podcasting, and I've asked, like, what's going on here? It's like, well, I just wanted the best authority on environmental science. I'm like, you know there are a lot of women who are authorities on environmental science. Oh, but I wanted an astronaut. That's why I was talking to a man. Well, you know there are a lot of women who are astronauts. And this seems to happen a lot where it's not just – men who are podcast hosts, it's men who are journalists, it's uh, men all in all fields, in film and so on, that they will just default to a man and it won't occur to them until you look at their guest list that nine out of 10 of their guests have been all men. And I see this all the time. This is a constant pet peeve of mine, how often I look at top 100 interview shows on iTunes and then I look at what their guest list is. And somewhere between 70 and 95% of their guests are men. Men, yeah. don't do that. You can do better. You can talk to women. You can talk to, you, you can talk to people who um, are smart and interesting who just happen to not be men. And all the better, too, if, if you're a, a male host and you're inter interviewing women, you have different, uh, s different sonic notes hitting your ear. You can actually really tell who the guest is. You know, there's these little other nuances that are great to have someone who doesn't quite sound like you also. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sonically, it sounds great. And then also you might be reaching a different audience. The more diverse your yeah. guests are, you may be bringing in a more diverse audience with each diverse guest you bring in. And that doesn't just mean gender. It also means uh, race, sexual orientation, national origin, a lot of other things. When we bring on diverse guests, we have the potential to bring on their audience as well. And as we wind down here, Kristen, I know I, I primed the pump saying, uh, asking you about, you know, very influential books for you, which I like to just call the bookshelf of the apocalypse. You know, these five things, you've got a knapsack of things that, it, and in that knapsack, there are five books you cannot part with, even though it might be displacing some, uh, some canned goods that you need to survive out there in the zombie apocalypse. Uh, what are some of those books that you just can't live without? <laughs> well, I'm totally cheating on this one, Brendan. I'm going to take a photo and send this to you so you can see it. Years ago, when I was getting my MFA in fiction writing, one of my uh, professors had us make a physical object that or would be telling a story. And, you know, some people uh, made toothpick sculptures. Some people uh, took flowers and planted them into, you know, uh, little boxes. Uh, people did all sorts of different kinds of things that would tell a story in an object. And I decided to make what I called my library for the end of the world. And mm. it's a little wooden crate that is filled with uh, half a dozen books. Love it. And each of the books are on the surface 
books that you would probably want to have around if the end of the world came. So one book is a book about gardening, for example. Um, Another is about earth sciences. But what happens is when you open up each book, there's a tiny little cutout with a tool inside each book that I consider just as important as the book itself. And so uh, the gardening book has a fork that can be used to shovel with, to eat with, and so on. The science book has a magnifying glass so that you can look closer at uh, leaves, specimens, bugs, and you can start fires with that magnifying glass. And each book uh, has something like that in it. So it's just a tiny little cutout as you're paging through the book and learning from it. Uh, At some point, you'll think, oh, I really wish I had a tool. And the tool for each of the things uh, for each of the books is right inside of each book. And the only book that you open up and that doesn't have a tool inside of it is by Jerry Falwell, I believe. And it's The Secret to Happiness. And you open up that book and there's nothing inside because, in my opinion, there is not one single secret to happiness. And it really is the process of living that's more important than the destination of happiness. So you don't need a tool for that. You just need to get to living. Well, that's incredible. That is a that is such a cool take on the bookshelf for the apocalypse. I, I, I love it, Kristen. Well, thank you. You've been so generous with your time. You're a badass. Your books are amazing. So you want to start a podcast, How to Be Fine, all the shows you host, buy the book with Jolenta Greenberg as well. It's uh, it's such a pleasure to speak to you uh, at length, just one, one-on-one as uh and um, where where might people be able to find you online, get more familiar with your work, Kristen, if they're not already familiar with it? Well, you can go to my website, which is kristenmeinzer.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Kristen Meinzer. And I am on Instagram also, at K10Meinzer, K10Meinzer. And um, yeah, and check out my podcasts, uh, Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen, and buy the book. Unbelievable. Yeah, great, great stuff, Kristen. And thank you so much for carving the time. This was a great honor and a pleasure. So best of luck and uh, keep up the, the amazing work. Oh, thanks so much for having me back, Brendan. It's been great. All right. How about that? That was good, clean, fun, wouldn't you say? Thanks so much to Kristen for the time. And did you hear that? Kristen's hosting six more podcasts. Incredible stuff. Who knew? If you want to get into this mess, this thing that we do, pick up her book. I bought the sucker and practically highlighted the entire book, thus defeating the highlight portion on my Kindle. So I might as well just have the entire book in my uh, notes and highlights. The book is that good and that tactical and uh, fun to read, too. So it's a fun read. Um, You know, I bought that sucker, like I said, and highlighted so much of it and I've been doing this for a while and I learned so many things that I hope to apply to get more of you seeing efforts in the in the room in the room in this in this little hang we've got so yeah well thank you friend I know you've got a lot going on you've got a whole you've got that thing over there and then there's this that other thing you're doing so the fact that you chose to take a sliver of your valuable time and spend it here means the world. And I don't just say that. Damn it, I hit my table. It's a Bush, bush League. That's a Bush League move, man. Maybe you heard it. It's, it's Bush. It's Bush League. The astute listener knows that when I ask Kristen about the frustration of having a, a good product, 
but not getting the traction, knows that was a nod to this here Enterprise, of course. And uh, she came back with a great answer, like, why are you making it, and who's it for? So, why do I make this show? Well, a lot of you might know, but I'll just kind of say, you know, these are conversations I wish people were having with me, and nobody was about to knock on my door. As a nobody, nobody's knocking on my door. Still, to this day. So I knock on lots of doors. Anyway. So I decided to fizzle? fizzle? No, no. Facilitate those conversations and celebrate people's work to get over my resentment and bitterness and jealousy that I felt very strongly back in 2013 when this hot mess started. Helps me, and I hope by extension, it helps you. And so that means, who am I making it for? Well, well, you, obviously, duh. But who are you? I think you're a writer, and you want, or you want to be a writer, and maybe you're a bit scared, or maybe you're blocked, or maybe you're a bit lonely, like I was, and let's be frank, am. I make it for people who love telling true stories. I love having narrative journalists on, like where my true taste lies, what I wish I was doing, like the great New Yorker writers that come on the show. Like, that's, that's my Fenway Park, you know? Memoirs, documentary filmmakers, rare as they are. I love having them on. Poets, producers. Because I think no matter the subgenre of creative nonfiction, I think there's insights you can take from all of them. I could have novel- novelists on the show, and sometimes I do if they've done some nonfiction work recently, but that wouldn't work, right? It's for nonfictionists, and hey, it's for CNFers, baby. And what I'm really shitty at is bringing my apples to the market. Like, I imagine an orchardist would rather just grow her trees, prune her trees, harvest her fruit, and hope that drivers will come by and buy her apples and subscribe to her apples on the side of the road. She won't be able, she won't be in the apple biz very long, right? She has to load up her apples and take them to the farmer's market once or twice a week and bring her delicious apples to the people and make that connection, right? That's where I'm real bad. I, you know, you know, I don't really take this to the farmer's market uh, to the way I, the way I should and rely perhaps a little too much on your generosity to tell other people to come subscribe to my apples. Is that gross? That, that, that's the kind of gross that I didn't even realize what that was suggesting. But, okay, whatever. Sure, okay. Some apples have worms. It's getting grosser. Sorry. I'm real sorry. But most are pretty darn good. Sweet and tart and go really good with peanut butter. I know there are thousands of CNFers out there. I just need to bring this and put it in front of them and say, hey, I grew these apples for you. Make a pie. Now that I beat the living shit out of that metaphor, it is my hope that you'll subscribe to this show. Tell the others. And maybe head over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign up for that monthly newsletter. Because if there's anything I've learned, it's that if you can do, interview. See ya. See ya.